Welcome to Shine Me A Light Podcasts. This is an episode of the last 27 years where we go through the last 27 years of one class of 95 Sydney Girls High School student and this episode is Nikki Hammond. How would people remember you from high school? This is such an interesting question because it has so much of my own perception in it. Yeah. And I think that People probably remember me as being quite standoffish, is my thought. Quite quiet and reserved. Yeah, I think that's probably how people saw me. I remember your bob haircut. (laughs) (laughs) So I I have a funny, I can't remember whether it was then, but I remember I used to be obsessed with getting nice haircuts. And there was one time when I got my haircut and I walked into work and someone said to me, are you wearing a wig? (laughs) And ever since then, I kind of realised that when you make your hair perfect, it ends up looking like a wig. So I kind of like the messy look. <laughs> I love that because I feel like my hair looked like a bird's nest at the time and I was always quite jealous of your – it was always quite, you know, neatly. Anyway, okay, so that's high school. So what we're going to cover is what's happened since. So what – I left at the end of year 11, so I didn't get to do HSC with you guys. So what happened from HSC? When you left school, where did you go? Did you go to uni? I, I, I took a year off. So I enrolled at uni. I remember I remember that all of the marks were coming out for, do we call it TER at the time? We I did at the time, yeah. No one knows <laughs> what that is anymore. <laughs> and I really wanted to do interior design. And at the last minute I decided I wanted to do international studies as well. And major in like a language. Is that a common major? Interior design and international studies? I don't know how a common double. I don't know. I don't so at UTS they offer international studies as a second degree. So you can end up doing a double degree and that's really popular to do. Whether people do it with interior design, I'm not sure. Yeah. So it's an eclectic mix yeah. Like law and politics, you hear people doing those all the time as a double, but interior design and yeah, there were quite. A, there was a handful of, of students who were doing design and international studies. Like it was pretty fun. Do you remember our careers advisor? This has just come to me advising us to do book binding. Oh my god, no! The only thing I ever remember him ever saying was engineering. Engineering was number one, <laughs> and the number two and number three I remember were book binding and sheep herding. Oh my god! Growth industries, evidently, from his perspective <laughs> in the nineties. I don't think I ever had a conversation with that guy. Random. Yeah, I just remember him on stage scaring me (laughs) out of doing engineering. Okay, so where'd you go in a year off? When did I do in that year off? I can't even remember now. Um, I think I must have gone travelling. I think I must have gone travelling, but I can't. It's just a blur. Like the whole of the younger years are a blur. I think I went to Japan. Yeah. I think I I ended up saving up money and went with a friend who wasn't at Sydney Girls High School. I think I ended up traveling throughout um, Japan, so sort of going on some random tour via the Shinkansen, via the train, and going to these amazing, obscure little villages where we saw a penis festival. We went to the ice sculpture <laughs> festival and just What's like. What's a penis <laughs> festival? I can't let it pass. What, what is it? What is it? So we didn't know it was on, but. I think it was a fertility festival. Is it like those 
Buddhist monks would tie it around the like the pole and then you know like the, that no or not. I don't like, know what it is. There was that. a giant penis and there was, was like, men in the snow. It was in the middle of winter, running around in loincloths. And the objective of this game, which was a competition, was to get water. Like they had hot, warm water or something, and throw it and a flag, I think, at the top of the penis, and the person who knocked down the flag first was the winner or something, and got, and then the whole team got to carry around this giant penis. I don't remember exactly oh, giant penis incredible. around the village. So, wow. And so... So incidentally washing it. Oh, interesting, yeah. Wow. I'm sure it was really ceremonial, meaningful, and we just happened to be there. And we were like, oh, this, this weird... This, yeah, it would get a different reception in Sydney. <laughs> Could happen. <laughs> different crowd. Okay, so you saw crazy things and it, I love that this is a blur time for a lot of people that it's 96 97 what so 96 97 98 pre it's all blurring did you get scared about y2k oh you know what y2k year, the year 2000 I was in France so I started my degree I, I started doing interior design which I realized sort of partway through that I hated it and then Doing a double degree, I go from doing like focusing on interior design and then on the on the language cultural part of international studies. So and then I actually took a year overseas. So in the year two thousand, I went to France and on that New Year's Eve, I didn't I didn't, wasn't worried about Y two K at all. Oh really? Yeah, I really thought it was going to happen. I had oh, a massive really? meltdown on that New Year's Eve. Oh, it's irrelevant, but yeah. <laughs> Oh, I hadn't, I, I just, I guess I sort of heard about it and I, I guess it was one of those things in my mind, oh, I wonder, but no, I wasn't that worried about it. That's good, you were saying. <laughs> I, and then when it didn't happen, I just felt like an even bigger idiot on New Year's Day. <laughs> anyway. Okay, France. Yeah, uh, so I was in France and on New Year's Eve, it was... Uh, kind of a letdown actually I was with a friend from uni and a, a couple of friends from uni and we ended up going to the Champs-Élysées and we couldn't see any fireworks so at midnight we were sitting in a uh, kebab store behind the Champs-Élysées <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a particularly memorable delicious kebab <laughs> yeah. it's a bit ironic really yeah. all the best food in the world yeah. Okay, so what happened from there and what ha what did you realise at that time in your life? So you're doing all these different things, you realise the degree isn't right for you. Was, was that kind of like a, a childhood dream attached to doing that degree or was it just kind of something that you just chose on the fly or how did it sort of? I did work experience in high school with um, like my an auntie, was sort of my auntie's sister because she was an interior designer and I just thought, oh, that could be glamorous. I think that was my mistake, was like, that sounds really glamorous and that sounds really fun and realising it wasn't what I was interested in right. at all. So I still continued to do the degree. I tried to transfer to fashion design, which I think I would have hated as well, but anyway. Um, and I just finished it. I just ended up finishing it. And um, when I came back from France, so France was interesting. France was interesting because I didn't have my sister. And so I haven't actually told her this before, but it was interesting because we, I think that's, that's the thing that people probably remember from high school is like we were the twins. Yes. 
And so everywhere we went, we'd be like, oh, you're the twins. And suddenly I wasn't like, I didn't have that identity. I didn't bring it with me. I wasn't, like, my story is so interesting. Our story is so interesting. Oh, the twins who were adopted from South Korea, you know, who came here when they were babies and were adopted by a a white family and, like, they grew up together and, you know, it's, it's interesting. And suddenly I was just this one person. And so I think that that was really instrumental in helping me define myself as an individual. It was, it was, I mean, it was hard to be in France and fun at the same time. Um, it was both. It was. And I forgot to cover this with yeah. Lucy. What's it like being a twin? I imagine there's this wonderful sense of comfort that you don't appreciate until it's gone. Is that true? I think that we have had our ups and downs like I think to every twin has a different relationship and from the outside people are like oh my god that must be so amazing but yeah, it's really just like right. having a sibling who's the same age as you so if right. you know what it's like to have a sibling they I happen do. to be the same age as you and the relationship takes whatever form your life experiences well thank you for telling me that from the inside because <laughs> yes from the outside I've always just imagined it would be so beautiful it would be like me but not me and you yeah. know yeah always I think that's a good thing is that we always compare our insides to other people's outsides yeah. and think we know the story um so what was it also like being adopted and being from another culture when did that kind of hit you that didn't hit me until my late 20s. So we knew pretty much immediately that we were adopted because obviously we looked so different. My mum couldn't ever hide it. And so it was a very natural kind of expression for her to say, oh, and you were adopted and, you know, we chose you, which is a yeah. beautiful story to give an adopted child. Yeah. Um, we didn't really have that much exposure to Korean culture. My family was interested in Asian culture, so we went to Asian restaurants and we did that. It wasn't until probably the my mid-20s when I'd been travelling, learning French, realising I love languages. I'd worked with Indigenous communities, Aboriginal pe- young people in Redfern, and then I'd work with migrants and refugees I realised that what am I looking for? I'm looking for my own culture. Like I'm, there obviously there is some interest within me about exploring something cultural and I hadn't realised that. That kind of gives me chills just when you're saying that because yeah. especially when you're talking, you're seeing it firsthand how important that absence or how that absence of attachment to culture yeah. effect, can affect people. Yeah. And so did you start, yeah, so that. So after I finished my first double degree, I decided to enrol in a Master's of International Studies and at UTS, they used to say you can't do Arabic and you can't do Korean unless you have a heritage in that. So you need to be kind of across a bit of the language and a bit of the culture because it's such a hard, both of them are such hard languages to learn as Anglo, like English speakers. Yeah. And so, and I said, well, try and try you have and not me. considered my yeah yeah. So you try and argue with me. So I enrolled in Korean studies. And I ended up going and living there for almost two years in my late 20s. How was that? That was intense. That was amazing. Um, I mean, I think, like, all through my younger years, I was, I felt like I was trying to be really independent. Like, a lot of my younger years was about me trying to be independent. I think I didn't, and I didn't realise at the time, I think there were a lot of people 
who hold a lot of trauma about um, you know, the kind of abandonment of adoption. And I don't think I have really confronted that ever until very recently. I think a lot of people, you know, the story is, oh, my gosh, you had a family that came and took you in and looked after you. How lucky are you? Yeah, and that's all nice. Yes. And then there's this other side which was like, oh, and you lost, like, your your family and they gave you up. And I don't know whether I fully articulate that to myself still. Do you have the full story? No. So the fact that I have a twin sister, my flesh and blood, always meant that I think I had a lot less curiosity about where I came from. When I went to Korea, I lived in a house for adoptees. So it meant that they supported, like financially helped out adoptees so you could stay in the house and they provided food. They kind of, it was it was like a house of all these people from all around the world who had been adopted from Korea. There is a nation of Korean adoptees, like 200,000 of us around the world. From about the period of early 1970s, I think, they started. So it was a solution. It government. was. The, the Americans, there was an American um a charity or there was some I can't remember what his name was who said oh what a great idea financially you know you're at war they were at war at that point um and they said because of the economic state of Korea we can help you so when there are children who don't have a family who can take care of them we can take care of them but what ended up happening was it became a financial exchange as well so America started giving them money and Korea really liked that and they were sending at times 10,000 children o- abroad every year. And so... Right, you think procurement. Yes, yeah. And so the, the Koreans these days feel very ashamed about that history. And there are a lot of Korean adoptees who don't know about their history. They don't have any information that is true because lots of the papers are fudged, lots of the stories kind of made up and they come back and I've so lived with lots of these people came back with a very heavy heart with so much curiosity about where they were born and who they you know what family they came from and I saw some of those stories and to be honest like I saw so much emotional like unraveling in these people I didn't want to yeah anguish I didn't want I didn't want to do that and so uh I asked my sister, like I asked Chrissy, do you do you want to search? Do you want me to search for them? And she said no. And so I, I went to the orphanage, which is written on our adoption papers, and I just said to them, look, I don't want to contact them, but I just want to know, have they tried to reach out to us? And if they have, then I would have then started that conversation. They said, no, they haven't. So we didn't find out anything about them. We didn't connect with them. I had a friend whilst I was living there who was from America and the Koreans use it, like they use these stories as, you know, for their media, for their entertainment. And he was one of the stars of a reality show and they put him on a football field. They put him on one end. They put his birth mother on the other and he'd never met them. And oh. they said, okay, now run towards her and scream, oh, ma, which is mummy. Oh. And so, I know. And so because of hearing these stories I just never wanted to really however we also have a history of taking reality television too far and being in bad taste I 
yeah, so personal to you. And I, I think I was just thinking, I wonder if they even knew, like without knowing the whole story, I wonder if they knew where to contact. Like, could it, you know? Maybe there's more to it, even more to it, you know? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I explored my cultural heritage. I yep. learned some language. And did you learn Korean? I learned Korean. My Korean is now Woo. not great. <laughs> I was pretty good while I was there. And then, I don't know, human brains. I remember yeah. my French yeah, from high said. school and then from university in early years. And I think absorbing and learning languages when you're older is really so hard. hard. My mother took me around Europe when I was a little kid for a couple of years and I was picking up language in every country and able to order us food. And, but you come back if you don't use it. When you got back, you would have had to make the people around you accept <laughs> you're speaking Korean to them and force all them to. That would have been fun. You could have done it to your kids. <laughs> I actually did have a babysitter who was Korean for one of my, my oldest kids. But anyway, yeah, in the, yeah I just... He, he, he never really learned They're now in a French bilingual school, so they're actually yeah. learning French. Yeah. I love that. I would love to just make up a language to speak to my children in. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right, okay, so where are we up to in timeline around now? We're, we're past the year 2000. Yeah, so, I mean, I just, like, did year two, past year 2000. So 2000 was France. And then there's this, when we talk about Korea, it was probably, it was actually quite a lot later on. Yeah. So it was probably when I was around 29 or something. Yeah, yeah, no, you said that. Yeah. So it sounds like you're on a journey of finding yourself. Yeah. And finding what you wanted to do. Yeah. Is that? I guess, I, I don't know whether I was ever trying to find what I wanted to do, which is really yeah. interesting because I never really felt like I had a career as such even though I did sort of have a theme in where I worked so I worked in multicultural services I worked for council I worked for not-for-profits I worked with people from different countries and kind of but I never really felt like I had a career which is interesting yeah like so. bear in mind neither have I I've just been all <laughs> over the shops there's just no and I had one thing I wanted to do that didn't happen and then just kind of sat there for a long time being very upset about that so I think, you know, yeah, I, I struggle to find new places. I still, what I wanted to do was be a songwriter. That's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. And I, I write very bad songs today. And then I look at them and go, oh, if only I'd practised for those, you know, 25 years. I wouldn't be so time. bad. I probably would time. be just as bad. <laughs> but, you know, I have a fantasy I wouldn't be. All right. So what happened next? Where did you meet your husband? So I met my husband's brother in my photography class okay. at university because I just minored photography in photography with Chrissy. No, no, separate photography separate, journeys. Separate. Okay. So I, so I, so as a kind of minor or major, I don't know what it's called, but anyway, when I was studying interior design, I studied photography. He was in my class. He was studying, I think, journalism. But anyway, um, and he met me, and he, and he actually said to me, "Oh, you need to do work experience. Come and do work experience with my brother because Adam was a." A furniture designer at the time which is kind of related to interior design so I yep, was like okay so. sure and he'd apparently gone home to his family and said I've just met your future wife oh, wow and so and then he said to me did he throw that line around a lot though or he just said no, it one time he said it one time Ooh. and so the night that we we were going to meet up for the first time to have dinner the three of us he, he looked at me and he's like you know my brother's 
like quite popular with the girls. And I went, what a dickhead. <laughs> there's, no, there's no way I'm going to pay any attention to him. I'm just going to be like, no, just let's just do this. this. <laughs> way to rub you the wrong way. <laughs> but it was actually perfect. So we were friends for like five years or something. And eventually he said to me, oh, we're going on a date. And I was like, what? Like I, I was like, oh, is it a date? Oh, and I thought, oh, this, this could work. He played the long game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, that's really yeah. cool. How old were you at that point? I think I met him when I was 21. I think I met him when I came back from France. And I remember – I was, well, yeah, I was doing lots of volunteer work. I was really busy. I think he might have been single when I first met him, but then, you know, he was living in Canberra. He was studying, had a furniture design business. I can't remember. And we, so we didn't really see each other very much, but I often sit on my phone and because his name is Adam, his number was always at the top of my phone and I'd bum dial him. Yeah. And every time I bum dialed him, he just happened to be in Sydney. So it was one of those weird things. It's like, oh, so ridiculous. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, I'm in Sydney. I'm not. <laughs> no, but we, we both were. Yeah, he's like, I'm not sorry. <laughs> okay. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, eventually we just got together. And how old are your kids? I have um, an eight year old who's 29 this week and um, 10 who's turning 11 in a month. Yeah. Okay. okay, parenting. Yeah. Let's talk parenting then, because for me, it's been the most god awful <laughs> and yeah. amazing experience all rolled into one. Yeah. As an adult, my whoa, biggest challenging moments are always around my kids. I feel sometimes they're sent just to try and trigger me, and other times the greatest joy and the times I just feel the most purest love is around kids. So, how, what's is that a universal experience, you think? you become someone different when you have kids that like you can't be the same person and I think when my kids arrived I was not in a particularly good place like we had come back to Australia from living in Korea and both gotten really boring jobs in Sydney and we were just like we don't want to do this so we'd ended up just packing our bags and flying to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and just starting life there. So I ended up having kids in Queensland. <laughs> so my, my oldest son was born in Nambour. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the Sunshine Coast, there was no multicultural sector there. Like, it's very yes. white Australian. See, that, now that's an interesting thing too. When I, because I went to school in the city and I went to Sydney Girls, yeah. always was around multiculturalism until yeah. I left and went to a school out past the oaks it was you know the old and ran into exactly that you know 99 percent I mean one token and she was like a set of a bad sitcom one token Asian was one was one Lebanese girl one an Asian girl in time and there were all the words I'd never heard before when did you first hit racism in Australia because that's when I hit it I, I and I know I'm white so it wasn't about me but it was it was in a sense that I I found it offensive personally because I'd never been around it and, and it was so ignorant. I remember there was, I might edit this, I don't know, but there was a joke about nip, nip. I didn't know what a nip was. Mm-hmm. And then they turned to this girl, Amy, and said, oh, I'm not talking about you, Amy. And so I realised, oh, nip is Asian. So uh, being the loud mouth that I am, actually, that's exactly who you're talking about. You're not talking about anyone else but Amy. Um, and I was like, that's oh, okay. You know, and I thought, oh, she's because she's grown up here. She's grown up with this her whole life. And I'm thinking, you know, this is not normal. When did did you hit it for the first time on the Gold Coast or did you hit that in Sydney before you? I don't know whether I felt racism 
on the Sunshine Coast. I felt racism, I experienced racism as a little girl. I think Australia's changed. Like when we were kind of, you know, around 12, someone said the same thing to me. Like they were like, nip, 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 nip. And we, my sister and I were like, what are you on about? Like, what does that even mean? And we had to ask our grandma. What grandma does it mean? Have you actually? It's like Nippon, <laughs> like Japan. That means Japan. Right. So I guess it's a derivative from the word Nippon. <laughs> I still just don't have an actual. And I guess it's, I mean. Understand. Like FOB, I had heard that one till I got to university. Fresh off the boat. Oh. At least I know what that means. Equally, right, when I first heard that, I didn't know what it meant yeah. either. But yeah, Nippon didn't actually, actually know how that even, yeah. Yeah. But I think in, in Sydney, in you know, the urban areas, it's not aimed at like people who present as Australians. So because we were so Australianized yeah. and we wore all those clothes and we didn't have an accent, I didn't I didn't experience it as a teenager. Yeah, I don't remember it at Sydney Girls. I just didn't remember I didn't see it anyway. If there was racism there, I didn't see it. Did yeah, you I see it there? No, I didn't see it there. When and so this is another question too, when did it hit you you were a woman and what that meant? Oh, weird. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Do you want me to go first? Because this has just been, and it might be true. Because uh, I've been listening to this, Dr. Shafali, yes. some of the big themes she's got. And I, it made me cry when I was listening to something because I, I smashed into it doing that Young Achievers at age 14. We, you know, made a little fake company and all this, and we were assigned roles. And I was doing so much work because I really wanted to be the CEO, and nobody was doing anything. And I was attending seminars on the weekends in my own time. And you now I'm 14, I'm traveling, you know, a three hour round trip to go to a seminar at Darling Harbour, doing a lot of stuff really and getting a lot of support from the group. You know, I came up with a product, I had a marketing plan, I was doing too much, but I really wanted that position, you know. And so when it came CEO, I put my hand up and they, well, they I got this response from the people who were running it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do we have anyone else? And I, I just, I didn't really understand at that point. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe they're trying to make it like fair, like it's, it's got to be a vote thing, but no deals had done anything or wanted it. So I couldn't understand why you're not just giving it to me, but okay. This boy up the back who had not said one word in the weeks we'd been meeting, nothing, lifted his cap and put his hand up and they said, who votes for him? And everyone did. And it was a humiliating moment. And I didn't understand why. And in the moment, I couldn't understand what was going on. And later on, and then the whole thing failed. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm so glad it failed. I was so happy when they like nothing sold and everything went wrong. And I, I refused to participate after that point. And I remember like, and that, another role came up and I put my hand up and everyone just voted for me because everyone felt they got to give her something. And I just, I couldn't participate in it. But I, it took me years really to understand. But something changed in me that day. I never tried that hard again um, because I just couldn't understand why my best was not wanted and then I like today I get it totally do you know I just had was the wrong gender I <laughs> had that been a boy trying really hard in that group and everything everyone just would have gone yeah 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 you know so I smashed into that at 14 when do you when did that hit you okay I haven't I like I really haven't I, I'll let you listen to Shafali and come back to me <laughs> yeah okay yeah, yeah I'll come back to you but it's yeah I think that's I, an interesting question I think I think I'm still unpacking so much patriarchy in yeah. my upbringing of, you know, my grandma who came from England who didn't think that she could earn money, like she didn't, I don't know. She, she can be subtle. I know, it just, yeah, I think it was like in my, in the history of her family, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, kind of it was said, oh, yeah, you can do what you want, girls, but 
I don't think it was fully believed. Like I still think I'm unpacking that. I still think people look at me in not just one moment, but so many moments of like, oh, what are you doing? Like I think people bring their belief systems to the conversation and I'm just, yeah, unpacking it all the time. Yeah. I really think that's. Yeah. I, think I was a bit like Miss White, I'm black and white. <laughs> I believed it 100% that I could do anything I wanted yeah. until that day. And yeah. then I went into the, flew to the other end of the spectrum yeah. and when I can never do it um, Okay, so you're married now, you have children, you're living on the Gold Coast. Central Coast. Oh, sorry, Central, Central Coast. 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 By the way, I have so much difficulty differentiating. <laughs> My friend lives on the Central Coast and I'm constantly telling people she lives in the Gold Coast. <laughs> I was like, didn't you say she lives in <laughs> a coast north? And how did you get back here? What brought you back? Uh, I got really bored. <laughs> <laughs> I, there was not a good time, like, to be honest. Like, we had two little kids and on the surface everything was really amazing. And like I said, like already going to the Sunshine Coast, I felt I think my ego had a massive hit where there was no work for me that interested me. So even before the kids arrived and we were trying to have kids and my husband was building a business um, and building a house. So he's he, at that time he had an eco building business and I was doing the bookwork in the background, but I was also wanted my own like identity that I thought I needed to find via work maybe before we yeah. had kids. And I was working in video stores and in like hotels, like, you know, doing service work and stuff and kind of like feeling really like, what am I doing? You know, I'm, I wanted something to sink my teeth into. And I ended up ma- making my first business by myself, which was just a tent. I had a little market store that I filled with things that I imported or my friends sent me from Korea <laughs> I tried to sell so there were all these little things like going on I worked for the tree of life and worked in fashion like I had all these yeah. things but I just kind of thought yeah I just didn't I, I think by the time the kids arrived I was so obsessed yeah with like making that perfect and I started a blog <laughs> called eco baby mama and it was all like about the environment and everything and bringing up kids and doing crazy shit like Elimination communication, which is when you kids shit in a bucket and you don't put nappies on them. Like, I did all this crazy stuff. I needed help with toilet training. <laughs> and I wanted to do it all perfectly. Yeah. I really did. And I was, there were times when I was just screaming into a pillow, just like, oh my God, I cannot, I'm just not doing it. You know, it just felt horrible. I mean, I think that's where it takes us sometimes. Yeah, no, look, perfectionism for me, I just I just posted something this morning and I was coming here. I've had to let go of perfectionism for myself because it paralyzes me. If I, It leads to procrastination for me because it, if it's not going to be perfect, what's the point in doing it? And I try to make it perfect in my mind and I end up paralyzed. I don't do anything. Um, and, and I sort of, I've these. I actually am half-assing it through today because <laughs> in my own assessment from the minute I woke up, I thought you're better. I just wanted to cancel the week. I thought you're better to half-ass it through your whole day than cancel everything because otherwise, yeah, I don't, I don't do anything. And what I think is half-assed. Sometimes someone else will send me feedback and say, "Oh, thanks so much for what you did the other day." So it, it is that how my assessment. I kind of sometimes just want to take my own brain off. <laughs> just put it to the side and just allow myself to be without all the judgment. How does perfectionism impact you? I think perfectionism, like you say, it's like the expectation we put on ourselves. So it's so self-created. And for me, it like comes out in so many ways. And I think like 
we can see it from both perspectives. Like, I don't want to say perfection's terror, perfectionism is just bad. Like, perfectionism does the same thing to me. It um, paralyzes me from doing things. So I can see it in my work. But it also means that I, like, enjoy, like, I enjoy, like, doing things at a high standard and not, like, I need, I have trained myself to be much better at saying this is complete, like this is this is enough. I'm enough. Like, I love uni deadlines yeah. because it had to whatever you had at that point, you had to press submit, and that really otherwise I would keep reworking and hundred percent. So I'm actually doing a writing a course at the moment, and in order to write this course, I had to invite like people to come and do the course whilst I'm writing it, so I have a deadline, and so yes. they know that they're my accountability. <laughs> They're my accountability. So, you know, at the end of the week, I'm like, okay, I have to press send. I have to press publish. Yeah. So I've got people there who – and it's, it's been it's been great. Like, it's been great. But, yeah. Oh, that's I good. It comes from knowing yourself and knowing you yes. need that to have yeah. a, a deadline. And, yeah. and I think that partly with this podcast I've put out when it's going to start being released and yes. I'm imposing deadlines on myself is so important. Otherwise, yeah. I know somebody actually who's been writing an album since 1996 – and I asked to listen to it the other month and he said, oh, no, it's not ready. It's 2022, you know. Yeah. What's it going to be played at your funeral? I, it's a, There's an extreme example of perfectionism. So we're going to have to edit that out as well. Okay. Um, we need a new word really, don't we, for like having drive and pushing yourself and challenging yourself to do your best without judging yourself and limiting mm. your output by holding back because you we can't see ourselves from the outside so we're always judging I think we're our harshest critics I love when I heard about the Dunning-Kruger effect I only first heard about that about a decade ago but there evidently are people who are not judging themselves harshly who are useless at things walking around going I am brilliant and I just went, oh, I'd love to feel that way. <laughs> like I just, you know, wouldn't it be from the outside once again, though? But I would just think that would be so cool to just make a crappy cake and go, I can bake. <laughs> I, I try really the, hard to do we that. We all have the capacity to do that for ourselves. Like, honestly, we do. We have the capacity to manage our mind and practice those things. To be honest, I think that. I don't want to be delusional though. I don't want to be delusional. <laughs> like I think it's like, like honestly, I, I think that we can we can do it in a way that serves us. Yeah. But I also think that there are a lot of delusional people yeah. in my coaching community who are charging yeah, lots of money for things that actually maybe they shouldn't be. So I think there's a level of ethics because <laughs> I'm like I'm like the ethical coach in my community. So I'm like, yes, we can we can totally create great thinking. Think of the effect that it has. And when it doesn't matter and you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, Kate. I think that's a beautiful thing. And it looks like crap, but I am going <laughs> to enjoy eating it anyway. I think you're right. That's right. The delusional element is the part you don't want, isn't yeah. it, where you actually do think something that, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just fantasising, aren't I? But, um, yeah, reduce our expectations on ourselves and enjoy things. And, and also, like, let's, we don't have to say I'm the best cake maker in the world to just no. enjoy, like, the accomplishment and the pride of I just made a cake. Yeah. This cake is awesome. It tastes amazing. Like, yeah. we can do that too. Because <laughs> when, we when we were kids, we did that. I remember yes. being a kid. That's so, so, it set in at some point, didn't it? Because when I was really little, I used to do artworks and think they were amazing and they obviously weren't because I was really little. And then it got to a point where I started being critical of myself and I think it was end of primary school that sort of set in and I, and it, yeah, it never left. I think it's 
cultural as well. I think that the tall poppy syndrome in Australia is so pervasive in our thinking that we cut ourselves down, other people cut ourselves down. Like we're not allowed to be proud or, you know, because it's like arrogant or... Yeah, or it yeah. actually has to be of a certain standard to be worthy of, of praise. Not because you... Yeah, we're not praising the effort. We're praising the... I don't know, just thinking of my drawings. And my mum used to frame them and hang them on the wall and I'd get so embarrassed because like, it's not good enough. Strangers are going to come to the house and see that, you know. <laughs> I was like 11, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, where from there? Life just rolls. What happened from there? How did you take care of your kids all the way until they went to kindy? Or did you put them in care? Did you have help? When they were really little... I tried to put them into daycare. <laughs> we were doing like conscious parenting, attachment parenting, and, I, and the schools and stuff that the, the preschools that or daycares that I was sending them to, they would just cry. They would just cry. And so my little one, I tried to put him into daycare just to get a break because we were up on the Sunshine Coast all by ourselves without any help. So, and it just didn't work. I was just like, it's not worth it. Because every time yeah. I go in, I try to get him used to the environment. And I was just like, I don't want to do this. And, like, looking back, I could have done this. I don't think there's any – like, I think that it was a safe environment and I probably just had to, like, just go, okay, he's going to be okay, like, one day a week for five hours. <laughs> he yeah. can cope with this environment and the people who care about him. But I ended up pulling him out. And the oldest one – I mean, the oldest one, he never wanted, he's so funny, he never wanted to leave my lap. He never wanted me to pay attention to anyone when he was little. <laughs> and so he also, he would, did, they ended up going to preschool, probably Montessori actually, Montessori preschool in um, Sunshine Coast. The older one went there from about age three and then the little one started about two and a half in Sydney. So what was going on in your life around that time? Because I, I remember for myself, it was Panicville. For, oh, I had kids at two very different ages, but let's just talk the second one because it's more. 38. I wanted to enjoy it, but I um, and I enjoyed it more than the first time because the first time I was very young. But it, but it was um, all about, uh, and it was the last time really that I had my priorities really screwed up was the first couple of years of her life. That was when I just kind of surrendered to a new priority list and a new set of values and principles and stuff. What do you reckon your values are? in your life because you're multitasking a whole bunch of stuff as well what's number one number one is actually me yeah yeah it's like my health and like my holistic well-being yeah because i can't do anything for anyone unless i'm okay and that's so counterintuitive in our society but how did you come to that no it didn't used to be that 100 percent it didn't used to be that so i was before, so I'm now a life coach. You don't know that. This yep. is my not know that. Before I found life coaching, like I was just giving like everything and I couldn't do, like I didn't go to the gym. I didn't, so we, we eventually, um, you know, we had this on the outside amazing looking life. We lived near the beach. We had this eco beautiful house. Like we had two perfect kids or whatever and like a good marriage, although there, were t- there was like a lot of pressure at that time. My husband was trading the american market at night and so he was like not available at night and then he'd you know he's just so tired during the day he'd go and he'd sleep but he was also he admitted like a few months later oh i'm only getting three or four hours sleep every day and he was just wrecked and so you know there, were, there was a point where it was like this is not working this is not working so i guess that was all the motivation for us to go let's go back to sydney we moved into an apartment and I can't remember. It was it was during that time I found a job. So I, all that time I'd been kind of 
wishing I could work in the multicultural sector. I was really missing it. And I ended up getting a job at council, like Willoughby Council as a multicultural community development officer, which was part-time. It was perfect. So I could, you know, still spend a lot of time with kids and then work. I can't remember if it was two or three days a week and just go up into the office. And it was that time I started to like have time by myself. So after giving everything to my family that I could, I was suddenly having time where I could like think about me. And this podcast I found was called The Life Coach School. And it was from my teacher book, Christio, who um, I studied with for a long time. I'm not the biggest fan of her work in some ways. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, she influenced so much of what, you know, who I've become right now. This I don't love how she does business. Um, and so I started listening to this podcast and changing the way that I was approaching life. And I don't think I'd even given myself permission yet to prioritise myself at that point. But I started to make these little changes in the way that I was thinking, the way that I was acting. And after a couple of months of listening to that podcast, my husband's like, what are you doing? What is different about you? And I was happier. I was less stressed. And I said, I'm listening to this podcast because I, I, I want to become a life coach. <laughs> like my lifelong dream. I was like, I I, I I heard, like, when we first met, actually, when I was 21 and I was working at the Multicultural Community Center or whatever, was it? Anyway, I can't remember the timeline. I'd actually said to him, when am I going to be a life coach? And he was like, what's that? And I was like, oh, it's this thing that I do already naturally. It's like just helping people with their life. And he's like, oh, okay. I said, I'm not ready because I need life experience. And so I came back around, like, in my 30s. I was like, oh, I'm ready now. I can do this. (laughs) So that's why I found the podcast. Like I've just been specifically looking for a way to like maybe work from home, have my own business. And I landed on this podcast and he said, you have to go and do that course. I was like, yeah, I want to. And so what does putting yourself first look like for you? Um, so it, at first I think it was actually saying no and not prioritizing other people all the time. So it was a bit of a shift for my husband. <laughs> I suddenly have someone in the house who's like not making lunch and breakfast and like doing all. That's what I mean as well about the feminism thing was so inbred in me to like just take care of the people around me and be that good like mom and good partner. Yeah. And I was doing all of it. And then suddenly I was just like, oh, I'm just going to do some stuff for me. Like I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to spend money on like going to the gym and taking care of my body. Yeah. And that was good. He was like, oh, Yeah. And I don't know, just like I'm going to make decisions about where I spend money and I'm going to go. Like eventually it was he actually encouraged me to go. It was like I'm going to invest in this coaching course and I'm going to do this. And I'd, you know, been by his side like coaching him actually, which is funny, through like all of his, you know, he was doing all this trading. I was, I was coaching him through that. So then it was kind of my turn. Yeah. And so then he helped me become a coach and he helped me yeah just look after my I guess intellectual expansion like the kind of I don't like the word spiritual but I guess that's what it's become like it's become kind of a spiritual journey as well yeah I I totally relate to that and I found that word really confronting too when it first came up because I I associated it with religion Mm. and I wasn't religious and so where's my spirit you know I knew I had a mind I knew I had a body uh, where's this spirit people would sort of talk about. But I could definitely understand when people talk about crushing a child's spirit and I 
I, I understand that concept and I sort of that's where I first sort of made it make a little bit of sense and that's why I couldn't find my spirit because <laughs> it had been crushed a very long time ago and that was the piece um, but yeah no spiritual I think is a, is a big deal and it's counterintuitive in the way I was raised anyway yet to put myself first and and it's selfish that word too is leveled against people I think a lot and, and it is and, and it works for everybody much better when I put myself first too it's that whole giving from an empty cup isn't it all okay so when I first started this podcast I wanted it to sort of be about the like the the lessons that we've learned how we've changed as people and so I think we've gone through a lot of that but in summary because do you get the feeling we're halfway through I kind of get this feeling all the time. It's like half time. Oh, that's interesting. Does that sound? My, I think it comes away from my dad and his sports metaphors about being in the final quarter. <laughs> sort of, I always kind of feel like I'm halfway between, you know, that the, the young and the old. Like this is halfway. What have I got at halfway? What do you sort of feel like you've learned and and you have pretty much covered it. And so I can edit this out if you want. But what do you feel like you've sort of learned at this age? And are you 44 already? Yes. I love the memories yes. of life. Yes. <laughs> I had to do the math. By the way, we're all heading for memory loss with perimenopause in the next decade. So, you know, it's just <laughs> as if it couldn't get any worse. So I love how you say, like, like you saying, oh, what being halfway makes me think. To me, if this is halfway, this is the part where we go through the – this period like right now is like we we've had all this time to know ourselves to fuck up and to do shit and be in a place then when we can reflect internally like I feel like when you say that to me this is halfway because we're allowed to reflect but to me halfway doesn't mean it's over and we're just going to get like old and decrepit to me halfway actually second half yeah it's like we've still got the second half and the second half is like really exciting to me still in the game love it (laughs) it. i'm still in the game we're still in the game everyone out there in fact i think the second half is going to be better than the first half but for me personally i'm looking forward to the second half i think so too first half was struggle filled it was really struggle there's so much discomfort like awkwardness this is a word that comes up it's so awkward like if i look back and everything was before then. And when I look at this, we have a, a, a school photo here. This is year 12, so I'm not in it. Great. And, yeah, so much awkwardness. So I'm looking at some of these hairstyles. So many mistakes, so much, so many things that we didn't know about ourselves that we had to get through in order to make it to this point in our lives. We were like, oh, I know myself better. And I can, I can feel it. I don't know. I think I can feel it. And I think this is true for many of us, where we're allowed to reflect back. We're allowed to take the time to go internally to do that sort of soul searching, yeah. which I never gave myself permission to. We're allowed to reveal all the yuckiness yeah. in order to heal it, yeah. in order to, like, shine a light on it. Bring it into the light. Yes. Exactly. I feel like that. I feel like, yeah, and I think back then I look at that photo and I think there was always – and maybe it's an ego thing, but trying to be better, but feeling lower, always never equal to others and not even wanting to be because thinking that being better was the goal and always feeling it's just this, the insanity of that is kind of the equalness feels real now, you know, and that just, oh, it's such a relief to feel equal to other people. Yeah, I oh. feel relief as well. I feel the same way. Heading into the second half with a lot of calm and, you know, now the children, the girls, 
you're about to go through high school what I've just gone through high school with one now they know it all and and, and watching from the outside the teenagers is painful yeah <laughs> I just oh, my heart goes out to all teenagers I wouldn't want to go back all right is there anything that you would like to add I can I can cut out the gap while you think and while I laugh. I want to be reflective on I know just re- reflecting on like how your podcast is such an amazing idea. I mean, I think it's empowering for women. It's empowering for the individuals who come and speak to this, and it's empowering for the people who listen and maybe you know get an inner view of the. We, is that what we are, like the yeah, Generation I, X? Is that yeah, who we are? We are. We're that micro generation. I Googled it. <laughs> if, if it's on Google, it must be true. Yeah. But it's a small generation. I don't think we're, we're we said we're mis, like underrepresented. I think we kind of are. I think there's been a there was a bit of a skip over us to the millennials who invented Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> we're using all the millennials' inventions. We. Do, but I suppose it's more of a question like, is there something special about our generation? I think one of the biggest things for, the, for everybody who's listening to this is going to be able to place ourselves in context because we're each other's peers from back then. And where are we today? We can place ourselves in the context of our peers. I'm I sure. Think, I think that our school is actually really special. I want to say this. Yeah. I think that we had so many people who were socially, kind of culturally, like, aware at that time like people who cared about the environment who care about politics like I can really feel that and for some sometimes it's like I just go wow it's amazing I really care about stuff sometimes I kind of find it a bit confronting like oh my goodness because there are so many amazing minds and um I people who who just want to do good stuff that came I think that's why it's brilliant that you're doing this that came out of that year and maybe it was the school I'm not sure I know lots of people from the school as well who's still doing incredible things what an amazing culture that came out of that because I don't think it is our generation necessarily I think there are a lot of people who don't give a shit but I think we actually gave a shit and we should be proud of that don't blame your sister for the generation next part (laughs) What are we doing today? She said, I think it's our generation. <laughs> I went, oh, I think you're right. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, no, there's definitely something special. There was. And I went because I went to another high school after that high school. And yeah. it was night and day. Yeah. It's completely different. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's fun to look back. And I hope that – I know I went to the school reunion and I didn't love the feeling of being there. So maybe, like you said, that was 10 years ago or whatever it was now. Yeah. Maybe – I felt like I was in high school again, which is, again, all that awkwardness that it brings up. But I hope that, you know, we get, we feel connected through these stories and that I think we're going to see a theme. I think you're right. We're going to see lots of themes of what came out through our culture, through that generation, through us as women, and that's really special. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Nikki Hammond. <laughs> Are we done? Wow, do I feel like I spoke way too much for a host in that podcast. I apologize, Nikki, but thank you so much for such a fabulous episode.